Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. The team is comprised of seven-time major champion, former number one in the world, Matt Svelander. We've got the Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American, former top 100 player in the world himself, Johnny Levine. Johnny will be joining us later. And we're going to be hearing from the great Nicholas Pereira here shortly. And Nicholas, I, I, you know, you, you had a very, very interesting career. You and you and Johnny have a lot in common because you share a birthday. You and Matt Svelander have a lot in common because in 1988, he won three of the four majors at the pro level. You won three of the four majors at the junior level. So you guys have that in common. And I think you and I have a few things in common as well is that I think we could both be described as guys that could lose to any player at any time for no particular reason, particularly compared to, you know, what we were capable of, but you had a, a three tiebreaker win over Boris Becker in your career. You beat Stefan Edberg on grass at Queens. You had wins over Tomas Muster, Aaron Crickstein, uh, lost tight five setters to both Agassi and Lendl at Wimbledon. So, Really, just a lot of highlights in that pro career of yours that lasted from 1987 to 1997. And we welcome you to kickserveradio.com. How are you, Nico? Excellent. It's, it's my pleasure. But I think the great applies to, to the third guy in this team. It does not apply to me. And it's, a, it's always a pleasure to talk tennis with, uh, with people that, that feel the same way about it as I do. So thank you for having me. Well, after all of those years playing and everything that you've had going on in your career, you're living in Miami, Florida. What do you got going on these days? We want to get caught up with uh, kind of where is he now? After tennis, I, I needed a break. So I stopped for a couple of years and then uh, being tournament director of a challenger and a little TV kind of brought me back. I didn't want anything to do with tennis for a while. And like, like Al Pacino said, you know, I, I wanted out and, and they brought me back in. So uh, I'm happy about it. There was 20 years of, of working for ESPN International. I've been working for Tennis Channel for the last two and a half years. So I, I keep after my passion. But uh, uh, my tennis passion was really uh, supplanted by, by a bigger passion, which is my family. We have three little ones. So I'm, I'm enjoying uh, the family life, you know, playing, playing house uh, for a change after traveling for so many years. So that's, that's kind of how I, how I hang my hat nowadays. Nico, what, are, are you as surprised as I am um, about the passion that you have found that you have for tennis? Because when we played as pros, I don't know, was it winning? Was it traveling? Was it the money? Was it the ranking? Uh, I'm not sure what it was, but I realized uh, later in my life that it – it was none of it, really. It's just hitting that little, well, it was a white tennis ball when I was a pro early on. And maybe you play with white tennis balls too, Nico. But, but it's just the game itself. What, do you have the same kind of passion now as you did when you were a 17, 18-year-old? Or 
Or what's different? How do you view tennis uh, uh, just as a game now compared to back then? And do you have regrets that maybe you were hoping this passion was there back then? Well, I don't think we have enough time to talk about all of my regrets. Plus, they, they would be boring. But it's a different passion, Max. Um, my, my passion uh, was competing. You know, I, 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 We were immigrants from Uruguay in Venezuela. So I was kind of a loner and tennis provided security. You know, I started hitting against the wall like we most of us did. And then uh, I had a dream of, of, you know, going around the world, seeing places, meeting people. And uh, I think at, at a certain point between my 18th and, and 19th birthday, I grew a bit disenchanted. You know, I, I had a, a pretty bad injury to my shoulder that did not allow me to serve as, as well and consistently as I, as I used to, which was my, my big weapon. And uh, the losses just took a toll on me. I, I did not deal with them very well. I stopped playing singles from 19 until 21. I, you know, I, I didn't really feel the passion for, for the tennis. And, and that kind of, Uh, grew back on me at 21, 22. Uh, but by then, I feel I had already lost the train. You know, I had uh, other interests. I had a tough time traveling. I loved being home. I craved being home because I left home at 12. So I think that that took a toll. And I ended up retiring at 26 only. So it, it was not easy. It, it was not a, an easy few years in the pros as my results show it but those are the cards that were dealt to me and and i am very grateful to have achieved some of my goals to have uh you know being able to to play in in the biggest events yes i regret not having better results and not being able to you know, achieve the success some of my peers did but water under the bridge matthias and and uh, i'm very happy to have found an avenue to stay close to to You know, my, my first love, if you want to call it, of tennis. And, and I can only be grateful for it because at 50, it's been front and center in my life since I was six years old. What do you like about what you're seeing in today's game? Or maybe what, what are some of your concerns as well? well? I enjoy a lot of it. And, and regarding your question or where the state of the game is, it, I, I don't like it. You know, it, it's, it's rough. It's tough to see. I understand the issues, I understand, uh, I think I understand all sides and, and, and it's supposed to be a partnership and, and it really isn't. Uh, I would like to see more collaboration as uh, you know, the, the current ATP leadership w wants to do it. I just don't see it happening uh, easily or, or anytime soon. So the, the game is struggling. We are going to have a dip after the big three or Murray that has gone now, Serena that, that uh, seems to be, you know, in, in her last years as, as a tour uh, guiding light, especially in the WTA. I, I see it as, as tough times and, and obviously the, the current situation does not help. So, Nico, it seems to me, 1973 comes to mind, the boycott of a lot of players at Wimbledon. Jan Cordes won. Uh, 1990, uh, the players, we broke away and started the ATP tour, uh, which is great for the players, a lot, lot more prize money. Uh, and it seems like it's inevitable. It's, it, there is always a change around the corner. And coming out of COVID, it does seem to me like this is a good time to, I don't know if it's joining the WTA 
with the ATP tours. Uh, but it certainly seems like a player sticking together is important. I just feel the structure has collapsed. I, I feel we should not have only tournament representatives and, and players representatives because their, their interests collide. We need some outside interest. I'm, I'm just going to give you an example. When you have the player council, the average age there is 28 to 30. They are no match for the tournament council, which is full of businessmen that are 60, 65, even 70 or more. These guys have lived a long time. They were players. They have a lot more business experience and they have the money. So I feel a, a change of a structure should be the first step. And, and what you mentioned, you know, the, the unity between the tours in this day and age, what's going on in, in the media, I think is a must. Let's go to a more fun subject, if we can. Our guest, Nicholas Pereira, here on KickServeRadio.com. We're part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And they're going to be starting to film uh, a movie about Boris Becker. And when I heard that at first, Nico, I thought to myself, this could be one of two things. This could be a Pixar, Walt Disney, bring the kids, see about the 17-year-old winning Wimbledon. Or, depending, it could be a Martin Scorsese very dark, R-rated. This could be a problem. Be sure, maybe keep the women and children at home for that one. What are your thoughts on a movie about Boris Becker? Do you think that's a big hit or is that a potential? And I will have to wait and see. Well, it's a broad spectrum when it comes to Boris. You know, that, that's a man that has lived. He has, he has uh, had a full life, obviously having that huge light shone on him for his achievements in, in an early career. It must have something to do with it. I know say, saving the distances and how great Boris Becker was, I know it affected me. So to the scope that, that he had to have suffered it or, or lived it must, must be something that I would like to, to hear. You know, uh, Boris has gone through a lot for a man in his mid-50s. And um, th that director is going to have his work cut out for him. You know, uh, maybe they, they can do a, a trilogy on, on Boris and that, that way they can, they, they can milk it better. <laughs> Nico, I was just telling Andy that you were kind of uh, the South American Boris Becker when you came out. Uh, you play, you, you most probably preferred a faster court than clay. I'm not sure, but your game was huge. Where is South American tennis in your mind? So is it a sport that people can get to play, that kids that are maybe less fortunate can get to play in, in, in your country, Venezuela? And Argentina keeps coming up with some pretty good players. But where, where is tennis in South America these days, do you think? Well, the, the, the love for tennis, it's palpable. And I have been working for 20 years for ESPN Latin America. I know the... the the amount of love that there is for the sport. Remember, in Latin America, we are uh, three generations into a, a big uh, immigration from Europe, and they brought tennis with them, and, and the passion is just fantastic. And then through great champions like Pancho Segura, Guillermo Villas, no doubt, two of the biggest names there, and, and, and I could go on and on, as, as you well know. Uh, tennis is alive and well. The thing is that for our players, it's very difficult because the period that it takes for a player to become good or great, at least in average, has increased tremendously. In our time, maybe even before, you had 17, 16-year-olds doing well in Grand Slams, 19, 20. But 
nowadays tennis has turned so physical that you have to be a, a full-grown man in order to withstand the the pressures and 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 the, the amount of muscle you need to to have a full season so that's why it's weird to see a sinner and to see these 20 21 year olds come come uh, through so in latin america it's difficult because that period that you leave the juniors until you start making money as a pro say it's an average of five six years it's very costly and we just don't have the resources our region unfortunately does does not have the same amount of advertisement and money that other countries have we certainly don't have a grand slam in the region which is a big advantage for any player that come from a slam country because there is a lot of that money diverted to to the formation of those players the development of those players in the in the four countries that have a grand slam and and there is no no secret why they they have uh, the best players so latin america is like the red-headed stepchild if you if you will of, of continents in, in those terms, because even Australia that is out of the way, they have the great Australian Open now. So, so they have a fantastic organization there and the tradition just, just uh, goes a long way over there. So in Latin America, it has become difficult. There has been try. Remember when we had our golden age, say 15 years ago, it was a, a direct product of a uh, circuit of seven to ten one hundred thousand dollar tournaments that were done and in, uh, in at that time it was called the Copa Ericsson um, and I think that gave the opportunity for a lot of those players that we have without having to travel far or in a very expensive way away from home it gave them enough points to qualify for bigger tournaments abroad and that way they would guarantee some money that once that circuit disappeared, I think it became an uphill battle. We we have had our great champions off late. We we have a couple recent ones, but it's just an uphill battle, and it takes a miracle for for somebody to come out of Latin America and make it as a professional tennis player. Nico, I want to thank you so much, and Matt's all credit to you to be able to bring great friends of yours like this onto the show with us. Our guest on KickServeRadio.com has been. Nicholas Pereira, he does great work on Tennis Channel, and he is still such an enormous part of our sport. Nico, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for all that you do for tennis and being the personality that you are. We really appreciate it. Hey, I'm just trying to give back to the game I love, and I thank you very much. Congratulations on the show, Matias. It's always a pleasure to share anything with you, my friend. Everybody say stay safe and say hello to the family for me. Thank you, Nico, again. Thank you. And we will be back with more KickServeRadio.com. We'll be joined by two-time Texas Longhorn All-American and a guy that shares a birthday with Nicholas Pereira. Of course, I speak of Johnny Levine. And we will be back with Johnny and Matt after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why SquadPod? SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden, that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So 
we're used a lot and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by squad pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with squad pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I want to thank Nicholas Pereira for joining us. And now we are joined by the former top 100 Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. And Johnny, was that a proper intro? Because I know that I got chastised for not mentioning anything about your pro career during the week and only about your college. And so I want to make sure I get that right. Matt Vlander's back. Well, and Johnny, we were talking about the amazing fact that Pereira and Vlander both won three majors in 1988. Vlander as a, as a, as a, not a senior, but as a pro, and Pereira as a junior. So uh, one in the world in juniors, one in the world in professional tennis, and you weren't around for any of that. So that was kind of a bummer for you, considering you and Pereira share a birthday. That's right. Me and Pereira do share a birthday and he reminds me of that and he's very nice to do so. And uh, so what year, that was 1988. And he ball boyed for you about seven years prior to that when you were down in, was it Venezuela or Uruguay? Caracas. You were in Caracas, Venezuela. Yeah. You, Jimmy Arias, Eric Carita, and who was your fourth? Tom Fontana was on that trip. Oh, was he? Okay. Jimmy Arias, I believe Eric Carita. And um, we went down there and we played with Jorge Andrews, who was a top ranked guy. I think he was in the top 30 in the world. And uh, that's where I guess Nico Pereira was a ball kid. That's right. And uh, watched that exhibition, which was a lot of fun to go to Venezuela and be with those guys from Ball Terry's. That was really a fun trip. So that was the early 80s. Then we got to 88. Now let's go to 2021 because we really didn't get to touch Matt Spielander on the 2021 Miami tournament, which featured a hell of a run by your boy, Yannick Sinner. And I say that because fans of the show realize that we talk about Yannick Sinner 
every show and we've almost turned it into a drinking game because you love talking about him so much, but you have really identified this kid as one of the players to watch and he continues to prove you right uh, just about every week on tour. And this run to the final of Miami was really something special. It was, and he won a couple of uh, amazing, uh, tough matches. But I, I guess at the same time, I have to say the style of tennis that, that he plays and that everybody else plays these days, is it's not that easy to predict in one uh, sort of singles finals. I thought that he was going to beat uh, Hurkacz, uh, a great Polish player. I thought Sinner was going to win for sure. But then you realize that Hurkacz is serving bombs and the margins are so small. Every time I watch somebody like Yannick Sinner come up uh, and then Hurkacz beating him, I realize how good were Roger, Rafa and Novak in the last 15 years. They won all the close matches. And I think we forget that they won all the big points because once you see two normal people play, I mean, it's nearly impossible to, to anticipate who's going to win the match. So I thought Sinner was going to win. And then you realize it's just a point here and there. And suddenly Hubert Hurkacz um, hit, hit a bomb serve. So great tournament for Sinner. Great tournament for, for Hurkacz, who is very talented as well. And um, actually, I like his game a lot. You got a guy, Hurkacz, Johnny, who beats Milos Raonic, beats Stefanos Tsitsipas, beats Andre Rublev, and then, again, finishes off center in the final. He's won twice in Florida this year. He's 10-0 and 0 in Florida and won those two tournaments, Delray and now the Miami Open. Is this guy poised to make a run at the top 10? Is he the guy that we've been waiting for? And maybe he's been kind of, to some extent, under the radar and, and maybe underrate that guy at your own peril? I do think he is underrated and I think he's been around and, and he's like, I think he's 24 years old. A lot of the guys, obviously they know him and he's, he's a great player. I just don't think he's had the, the huge results in the big tournaments for the average fan to know who he is. And, and, you know, being the first Polish player to win a masters 1000 tournament is, is, is a big feat. And um, he's definitely here to stay. I mean, you know, center was as hot as any player, has been in that Miami tournament and he handled him pretty, pretty good. I mean, in straight set. So what a, what a great victory for, for the Polish guy. I'm not going to say his name because I'm not, I can't do it like Matt. So I'm not going to, you know, botch that. So anyways, I think we've got some great uh, insight on this guy and I think he's here to stay for sure. Well, and I think our listeners are disappointed because they look forward to hearing you absolutely butcher somebody's name every week. So we'll just keep going on with the show and hope we get to that at some point. Matt's her coach really earned his way to that final, not to say that Sinner did not, but it didn't hurt his cause to see Roberto Batista Agut take out number one seed, Daniil Medvedev, and then Sinner was able to take out uh, Roberto Batista, good, who he had beaten earlier in the year. I think he just beat him within the last couple of weeks. Does that in any way taint the final appearance by Sinner to know that to some extent uh, RBA did a little bit of the dirty work for him? I don't think that really matters these days. And I was actually, before you uh, ask me that tricky question, um, I was going to say that is it good and healthy for the men's game to have sort of a new name that has a big game like uh, Hubert Hurkacz? That's, he's got a huge game. Um, that's what we're going to see going forward. So we're going to see guys serving huge. They, they, he hits the ball really well off of both sides. 
I do think that he was helped by sort of losing the, the, the bigger name that is Danny Medvedev. And I feel that he might be a little bit timid psychologically on the court. I think he could toughen up a little bit on the outside. I'm sure on the inside he's, he's burning up with uh, intensity. But uh, it would be fun to see him be a little more engaged. I think that would help his game. But, you know, it, it's so interesting with uh, Novak and Roger and Rafa not, not playing, not winning everything. Are we heading towards sort of the PGA Tour here where there's a new winner pretty much every week and the fans have to get to know these players? Is that good and healthy for, for tennis? What, what do you guys think? Because we're stuck in this era of, of dominance uh, uh, from the big three. Is this, is this great, these new players coming up and, and having new winners? What do you think? Well, I'll start if it's okay with you, Johnny, because this – as we record, is Masters Week. So you you make the comparison to the PGA Tour. The difference there, Matt, is that when you talk about a different winner every week, you go from Justin Thomas to Brooks Kepka to Rory McIlroy to Justin Johnson to, to really you can almost go 12 to 15 players deep of what you could almost consider to be an international superstar, a household name. And I think the PGA Tour has done itself a world of good by marketing itself in, in, in such a way and, and, and being fortunate enough. And you got Jordan Spieth breaking back into the mix where it looked like his game had fallen off by virtue of a loss of some confidence that he looks to have regained. So we'll have to see if that is able to carry him to potentially another uh, Sunday run at, it, uh, at, at Augusta. But I, I think tennis would be extremely fortunate to find itself in the position that the PGA Tour is in. But you're talking about guys out of the tour that have skied in the wake of the Tiger Woods era and done so successfully by competing with Tiger, beating Tiger, and creating a level of relevance and notoriety for the entire tour. I think similarly to the way NASCAR has done, you got a lot of drivers out there, any one of which can win a race on a Sunday, and, 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 and that driver has got you know a, a huge army of fans behind them. I think golf has that right now. I don't think tennis, Johnny, is anywhere close to the level of notoriety going down the rankings. You said it yourself. You get past Federer and Nadal, there are a lot of mainstream sports fans that don't know of Djokovic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think tennis is um, – it, it's, it's really neat to see new guys win these big tournaments. Um, I, I think it's great for, for, for tennis in a way in that it shows the depth of our sport. Um, I think the issue that we have though, um, Andy, is that I don't think the ATP, I mean, they've done a pretty good job, but to, you've got to market more than the top three guys and the public doesn't know, you know, a guy like Herkosh. Okay. I mean, maybe he's, you can't really count him. I mean, the guy was, he, he didn't have any top 10 wins prior to, to this event. He had beaten team a couple times, I guess. So that, that counts, but he really didn't have any major results. And here, you know, he comes out of nowhere. He lives in Florida. So all the guys know him. He's, it's not like he's a newcomer and he's been on the circuit for six years, but no one knows him. And so, you know, when you get, when you have a guy like that in the finals of, of a major tournament, you know, like Miami and, and, you know, people turn on the TV and they don't know who he is. It's just not great for the popularity of the sport. Um, unless you can get these guys 
marketed better. Um, and how are you going to market a, you know, a guy from Poland who, um, you know, I can't even pronounce his name. So, <laughs> but that's you. Yeah, that's me. Most though. people can. Herkaj. Yeah. So I, I think, I think ATP tennis, you know, at the, at the high level, they've got to figure out a way to get, get great marketing for guys that are lower ranked. I think they've done a better job than they did obviously when, when Matt's was, and I was playing, but, um, it needs to be a lot of work done on that. And, uh, you know, we want it, we want the sport to, to reach the, the, you know, all sports fans and not just the tennis people so that the sport can, can, can begin to, to be more popular for everyone to, to turn on the TV and enjoy the tennis. They got to know who they're watching. That's the, that's the issue. Well, okay. So let's go back to what you just said, Johnny Matt's when you guys were playing, I mean, who was marketing Matt's Vlander? better than Matt Svelander. I mean, you had Stefan Edberg, you had Boris Becker, you had Yvonne Lendl, you had John McEnroe. I mean, you guys were doing the self-marketing. You guys were winning majors. As Johnny makes the good point, you guys were showing up in people's living rooms, in some cases, whether you were invited or not, but you were showing up in people's living rooms on network television. And now these tournaments are not being played on network television, which is a point that you have made over and over and over. So has the sport cannibalized itself from a popularity perspective by going to a tennis channel format, as opposed to putting more of these matches on network television for the mainstream sports fans to see? Um, I do think that, and I'm going to say this, and I'm sure that somebody's going to come down hard on me for sure. But I'm going to say this, even though the PGA Tour does do it, I don't believe in the baseball cap. I really don't. I don't think tennis players should all wear a baseball cap. I think that the long hair of Bjorn Borg um, or even the, the perm that Jimmy Connors had. Remember that, Johnny, for a oh, yeah. year or two, Roscoe Tanner. I think that we need to see these uh, guys. We need to see their faces. We need to see the facial expressions. I get that it's healthier to wear a baseball cap and stay out of the sun. But I don't think that the baseball cap is, is something. We need to see tennis players' faces. I think with golfers – we're looking at their shots and they're, they're replaying a great chip from, from six different angles. And sometimes a putt, they, the camera is right behind. In tennis, first of all, we don't have, I don't think we have enough good replays of great shots. We're very worried about covering each point from the back of the court so that everybody uh, can see the point. And, uh, and I think we need to see these players. We need to know who they are. And I think that's how you market yourself a little bit. I don't know the, the the culture. We have to be a little bit careful. I think. Where is Andre Agassi? That all the the long hair and the headband and the jeans shorts. A little bit of that, um, I think, would be good. At least that's what tennis has always been like. And I'm a little concerned that that uh, everybody starts to look the same. Uh, and of course, the techniques sometimes uh, resemble one another as well. But I think we're talking about the U.S. mostly because you would know better, Matt, in Europe, tennis is a lot more popular. So in the U.S., without, and I've, I've said it before, without the top 10 guys, top 10 U.S. players vying for slams, we're going to have a problem with popularity. Uh, in Europe, it's different. I mean, and, and, and the, the sad part about it is the level of tennis is just so insane it's better than it's ever been. Obviously it's like most sports, but it's just the way these guys hit the ball. You know, if you're down live and, and watching it, it's, it's really fascinating to see. And so it's, it's a shame that it isn't more popular, but 
talk about it in Europe. I mean, Europe is, is it, I think the popularity is great in Europe. And, and, and a lot of the people there, you know, follow the guys that we wouldn't, that ne- wouldn't necessarily be popular in the U.S. So I think it is very different. Okay, so when we come back, I feel like we've identified what's wrong with the game. When we come back from the break, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix the sport. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden. I'm with the great Matt Lander, Johnny Levine. When we come back, we're fixing this damn thing once and for all. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We were just talking about, you know, how how although this day and age has a game that is at a level to which we've never seen, we're, we're, we're coming to the conclusion that what's wrong with the sport, among a lot of other things, unfortunately, politically and, and otherwise, is just the lack of contrast of styles and you were about to jump in with something, so I want to go right to you and find out what you were going to say before we went to the break. Well, I was going to say that what really sells and what really gets people's attention and interest in, in the sport, in my opinion, happens to be you know controversy and things that uh, are not just such a friendly match. Let, let, let's take the match 1979 U.S. Open Mass will remember this one. I'm sure you will too, Andy. The famous Nastassi McEnroe match with Frank Hammond coming oh. out there and Mike Blanchard, the U.S. Open referee, and that whole controversy. I mean, that's that hideous. People want to see that kind of stuff. They want to see controversy. They don't, you know, they, they like to see that kind of excitement. And, and we've talked about Nick Kyrgios, and I know Matt's, you know, gives him a bit of a hard time because he wants more effort out of him. And I, and I get that, but for me, and I love watching tennis. That's the guy I want to see every time I go to a tournament, I want to watch Nick Kyrgios because you know, you're going to see something controversial, interesting, you know, he's going to do something that, that you're just 
you know, it's like the shock value that you get. And I think that that's what tennis is missing. I know the contrast for sure, but things got to get stirred up. And I think that's when, when, you know, when you think, when you talk about, uh, you know, people that love sports that aren't necessarily tennis nuts, if you bring up the tennis days, they think of the, you know, the Connors and the, and, and how he would go crazy in matches and the McEnroe, how he would get so pissed off and, that's what people remember, and that's what what brings the attention to the sport. I don't think we have that right now, and that's that's where we're lacking. So then, my question to Matt's would be: At what point, Matt's, does it go from the John McEnroe at Wimbledon that had not yet broken through and was just considered an idiot that the British hated him, and he? It, it's when you take on the world and you win. That's when you earn everyone's respect, and then they come around to sort of root for you. So I think the difference between Nick Kyrgios and say Benoit Pair for being two people that can both just complete, go, go into complete meltdowns at a moment's notice. Why, why are we willing to watch Nick Kyrgios, but Benoit Pair we couldn't care less about like, what's the difference? Cause Kyrgios hasn't won anything yet. But he, he's beaten big players, Andy, though. He's, he's beaten big players, but he wins. hasn't won a major, he hasn't gone on a center court Wimbledon and, call the umpire a jerk and call the people in the crowd that you're the pits of the world and still won the damn thing like Mac did. And that's when everybody kind of gave it up to him. Matt, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, let me bring out though, because um, I do love watching Nick Curious when he tries, I, I think not trying on a tennis court is just, it's just too unprofessional. If it happens once, maybe, but remember the big match against Rafa Nadal on Wimbledon center court. Uh, that was huge. He played Roger Federer in, in Kibis game one year, and I think it was three tiebreak sets. Uh, slightly controversial. Clearly, uh, there was a little bit of bad blood between them. Then uh, Nick Kyrgios took out Rafa Nadal in Acapulco a couple of years ago, and that's when he started the underhand serve. So I think he's, he's uh, done that. He started uh, uh, sort of not disliking his opponent, but the crowd – they gave the crowd something to cheer about, like, oh, they don't like one another. There's a controversy. And then clearly uh, Nadal and Curious have differences. So I think he's on his way. I do think if he wins a, a big tournament, a major, then that's going to completely change everything. Until then, uh, it, it doesn't really work for me, um, the days that he does not try. But I, I'm not sure what... I mean, what happened? When, when, when are you okay playing professional tennis or professional sports and not trying is an option? I mean, I don't see that in other sports. So that's really weird that, uh, but then again, do you suspend somebody like him for not trying? Well, maybe that's what he wants. So I, I don't know. It's a tough situation. I think you need to um, somehow get into Nick Kyrgios's head and make him realize how much people love to watch him play when he's, when he's trying uh, and he can go ahead and hit as many tweeners as he wants. I don't care about that. I, I think it's fun as hell. He's so good at it. But I think that we are starting a, a trend here with no line umpire, line line umpires. Don't even say it. That's bad. We need line umpires. We need the challenge system back. That's when people got involved, and they were they were whistling or booing or saying something, and the player had to choose. Now, and I don't know if it's just from COVID, but certainly uh, uh, we cannot take the line umpires out. Now, what does the chair umpire have to do? Nothing. What does the players have to argue about? Nothing. So I think it's really a dangerous time to make these changes. I I hope it's only because of COVID 
Um, and then players need to get together and realize that when Roger and Rafa and Novak are gone, they, there's going to be a lot of responsibility for these guys. And uh, I think they're, um, I hope they're willing to take it on and think of tennis uh, first and of themselves second. Johnny Matz makes two great points there. The human element is being, is being discarded and it is being, um, it, it's being kind of uh, minimized. But also, as he's talking about these players not trying, we have to we have to look back on that era and go, okay, these guys that had a tendency to lose their minds at one time or another, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, to a large extent, Andre Agassi, when he was young, we never saw them not try, Johnny. We never saw these guys. Maybe Agassi a little bit would get a little he, – he might have a tendency to be – you know, go into one of his little pouty moods when he was in his early 20s. But eventually, Andre way outgrew that. We never saw that from Jim Courier. We saw Pete, you know, maybe look like he was kind of, you know, maybe at the end of his rope a little bit physically, but he never, I mean, we'd, we'd see him puke his guts out on the court before he would give away a match. Maybe that's another part of what's missing is just that willingness to crawl over broken glass to the finish line like these guys like these warriors did back in the day so now it's not just the contrast in styles but it's are these guys as willing to just leave every single bit of skin and blood and guts and sweat on the court now like they used to I don't know. I think there's a few players that you look at that you wonder, you know, do they have a screw loose yeah. Up top, and you know, one of the greatest competitors of all time. We always think of Jimmy Connors, but there's 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 another guy out there that left it all out there, and that I compare him to Jimmy Connors. I'm pretty sure Matts is going to agree with me, Leighton Hewitt, and this guy is as was as tough a competitor as any of them. And I'm wondering, you know, and he lost in one of his last matches to a guy that has a tremendous amount of talent, Bernard Tomich. This is a guy that you got to put in that same category, tons of talent and tanks half the time, you know, mentally nuts. Were there guys like that in the, in the eighties? There had to be some guys like that. There, there's always guys that don't reach their potential, that go crazy, that don't have the good mental that you wish you could see more of. But when you mention a guy like Benoit Pair. I mean, he's not moving the needle anywhere. He's a great player. We understand that. But he is, I mean, he, he is not nearly at the level of a Kyrgios, in my opinion. So it, I just don't think it really matters. I, I, You know, the top guys, those are the guys that matter. And most all those guys are giving it their all. And um, they're leaving it all out on the court from, from my perspective. But Matt, he, he, I agree with Johnny. I mean, in terms of perception, but... I, I haven't looked at the rankings lately. I'm not 100% sure Nick Kyrgios is ranked ahead of Benoit Pair in the world right now, is he? I mean, he might be a few spots, but they're both somewhere between 18 and 30 in the world, right? I mean, neither one of those guys is 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 top 16 or top 15. So I agree with you, Johnny, but the rankings would suggest differently. So there's something about Kyrgios that is, that is very compelling. There's an immense amount of talent. There's, there's an air of 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 swagger about the guy he's got a sarcastic personality he's got a sense of humor he's an entertainer he's a performer out there and i'm not sure you would say that about pair but let me ask you this matt matt if, if we if we look at the women's game now who are we counting on 
to be able to, uh, you know, to use Johnny's term to move the needle there. Who's moving? Is Naomi Osaka moving the needle for the sport right now? I mean, she's clearly the best player in the world, although Ashley Barty just sort of justified that in Miami by winning Miami. Who's who's carrying it right now? Well, I mean, Naomi Osaka is, I think, yeah. But I think Bianca Andrescu, I mean, how welcome was it to see her back? Because I think she could. She has that Leighton Hewitt sort of mindset. She fights hard. It means a lot to her. And uh, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully she's a great role model for, for uh, other girls out there because she does care. Uh, and she tries really hard. Uh, you just hope that she stays healthy. But I think it's her. And Naomi Osaka, for what she did at the U.S. Open and the comments that she made, and she's taken on this role of a, of a leader uh, in women's tennis. I don't know if some of it was most probably uh, involuntary, just sort of happened. But uh, she's out there, and she's not afraid to state her opinion. Then we look back, Johnny, on the greatest rivalry in the history of the sport, and we look at Everett Nauvertilova. And again, we go back to a contrast in styles, a contrast in personalities, you know, little miss baseliner versus, you know, big, bad Martina coming to the net and, and, and playing, you know, a very aggressive, very potent game. And those two couldn't have been, couldn't have been more polar opposite on the court. And we love that. And yet, as opposed to some of the rivalries on the men's side, uh, Everton Navratilova eventually ended up the best of friends, almost like sisters, but that contrast in styles, we don't have anything like that right now at the top of the women's game. Should that be a concern for tennis fans that there's nothing that even remotely resembles Everett Navratilova? I think you make a great point. And I do think it is a bit of a concern because we, we like the contrast and, and, you know, we were talking about, you know, you, you question what I said, which is true. I mean, why is tennis, not as popular it seems, but yet that the level is so incredible. And it's because, you know, you watch these guys bang from the baseline, but like you said, Andy, there's no contrast. And so we get tired of that. We want to see contrasting styles. That's what people want to see. They want to see differences. They don't want to see the same boring stuff. And, and the Everett Navratilova thing, you know, it really, really was a, an amazing rivalry for, for everything you just said. Do, is it is that is that exists now with the women players? They all play so much the same. Um, I mean, it's it, we're, we're impressed with the way they hit the ball, how they hit the ball, the fitness level, uh, the strength. It's the serving for women's is just it's so impressive. But we but it's all but so much of it's all the same. I don't know where, where the contrasts are going to come in in women's tennis. I don't see it. I think guys, it'd be fair to say that we talk about the contrasting styles. And we talk about the me against the world mentality as being two compelling reasons to watch tennis. And so when I think back on what made Venus and Serena so compelling, even though they really did bring a level of power and athleticism to the sport that completely raised the bar on women's tennis, they also kind of had this us against the world thing going on really because of their dad. You know, when Richard Williams is, is on center court at Wimbledon, you know, holding up a sign going, it's Venus's world and you're just living in it or whatever it was that that sign said after Venus won that Wimbledon that year. He sort of, whether the girls liked it or not, pitted them as, as the villains of women's tennis to a certain extent. And there was a large 
you know, section of the population that was obviously rooting for them and loved seeing them as American players and the story, you know, coming from Compton and hitting tennis balls in the, in the bottom of an empty swimming pool and all the different things, the way they sort of rose from their surroundings um, and, 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 and meager existence as kids to become, you know, sisters that are one and two in the world. I mean, we'll never see a story like that again, but it's, it's the story surrounding the players. It's the way they're willing to make themselves an enemy of the entire stadium and then still come out on top that I think really gets people to want to watch and see, can this person actually do this? I think we figured it out, guys. We talked about coming into the segment, we were going to fix the sport. And I think we've come up with the ingredients. We've got the level of tennis. That's not the problem. We need the compelling personalities. We need the contrasting styles. We need the coaches. We need the agents. We need the physios. And we need the promoters and marketing people to sort of create this, and whether it has to be a World Wrestling Federation version of our sport, that's what we need. We need contrasting styles, and we need, we need guys that under no circumstances are they going to mail it in on, when they get an opportunity to play in front of a big crowd in a meaningful tennis match. That goes a long way. All right, boys, that's another one in the books. Great stuff. We want to thank Nicholas Pereira for joining us earlier in the show. And Matt Vlander has promised an unbelievable array of guests for the balance of 2021. So, Matt, it's time to get the Rolodex out and get to work. Hope you're able to do that. We'd appreciate it. For former top 100 player, former two-time major doubles quarterfinalist, and former Kalamazoo finalist in the juniors, Johnny Levine, seven-time major winner, former number one in the world, Matt Lander. I'm Andy Zoden. We're at part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we will see you real soon.